deserves a place to live that's safe. Human rights, housing rights, and justice should be more important than money. People are more important than money. In order to create the State of Israel with a Jewish majority on 78% of Palestine, Zionist forces depopulated and destroyed 500 Palestinian villages and then denied 750,000 Palestinian refugees the right to return to their homes after the war ended. How does it reflect our values in society that there is such a program where we could provide for the basic human right in need of housing? And what could it be? What should it be? That's the type of stuff that we want to reflect on. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and today we're going to hear voices of residents in public housing here in Washington, D.C., who are fighting like many of the urban poor and working class around the country, displacement, gentrification, and the loss of communities where some families have lived for generations. We caught the premiere of a community theater presentation on My Mind, In My Heart, Voices of Women in Public Housing, which will be touring around Washington during the next month. In the first half, we'll do an extended news segment today with a new video produced by the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and a new movie about the radical abolitionist John Brown is also in the works. But speaking of gentrification, we'll start with a piece reported by Chantel James on the opening of the D.C. Wharf Project on the waterfront in southwest D.C. The labor of enslaved Africans built the original wharf in southwest Washington, D.C., and a vibrant community of freedmen thrived there after the Civil War. Soul legend Marvin Gaye grew up in a now-demolished housing project called the Fairfax Apartments, not far from the wharf. But would he recognize the neighborhood where he came up hard, as the song goes now? This fall, the city of D.C. unveiled its $2.5 billion, three-year-long project. An entire prefab community of hip condos and apartments and upscale restaurants. On the Saturday of the opening, I wandered the pier with hundreds of others. A conspicuous black face in a crowd of white families with children and dogs. They took pictures of themselves along the pier with their phones and nodded their heads politely to the musical acts singer-songwriters with guitars or violins. They were already so comfortable in a city investing billions to attract others like them, bulldozing history and displacing family legacies. One Southwest resident I was able to find at the opening, Pleasant, expressed reserve about whether the shiny new landscape of the waterfront would bring positive changes. It's the wharf and it's something new that's happening in the city, so I thought me and my family would come and check it out. Right, so do you feel like it's 
the opening of the wharf is bringing positive changes to the city. It's bringing changes. We'll have to wait a while to see if they have to be positive or not. Long-standing residents had the opportunity to voice their concerns about recent developments at a meeting in Power, D.C. held at the southwest branch of the D.C. Public Library. A southwest resident, Adjua, worries that she and others like her will be shut out from all the high-end businesses and restaurants that have sprung up, as nice as they are to look at from the outside. I like the improvements. I like the eye candy, for lack of a better word. Um, it's beautiful to look at. It's, it's nice that they're having more shops and more restaurants and things like that that gives you a kind of like a mix. But it's also, you know that this is starting to become the new Georgetown. That it's not something that people like me can afford. So it's kind of bittersweet where it's nice, but I'm just window shopping. It's not something that I can actually participate in. It's not like I can say, okay, look at those apartments down there. Like, honey, let's go look at the apartments. We can't afford those apartments. But I don't see more jobs. I don't see more family-oriented things. I'm looking at what I see as their vision of what Southwest is supposed to be looking like. And that being said, like, you know, it's just bittersweet because I, I, I want to be a part of that. I like it. I like the new, you know, the boardwalk type look. I like all of that. But I, I don't feel like it's all inclusive for everyone. All right, say I got a job that's paying me $20 an hour. I still can't compete. At the Wharf's opening, Rita Abraham of the project's development team spoke to us with pride in the massive undertaking of transforming the wharf into the slick concrete and glass-lined attraction it has become today. I think we all have a really great sense of pride right now because this was a really insurmountable project to embark on. You know, at least you know, 10 years ago was really when all of the, the really the getting down to the creative side of the planning and going through all of the different acts of Congress to mm -hmm. actually get to where we are today. So throughout the construction and the design process, it's really great to see it come alive and have people down here and see the intended use of all the different spaces and even the unintended use. Yeah. We've definitely achieved what we were hoping for and we still have a few months yet to go and yes. until right. we have all still of finishing our... Up, yeah. Yet for residents of public housing in Southwest like Linda Brown, this effort has been one of many forces of displacement of working class people across the city. Brown is part of a performance called On My Mind, In My Heart that aims to use art to spread awareness in the fight against gentrification. I'm a Washingtonian. I grew up in Northwest. I've gone and come back and I had a daughter and that's how I moved into public housing. I moved in and I think it was 2003, around 2003. Okay, yes. Are you feeling like there's been some displacement in the neighborhood because of the development that's going on with the wharf? Oh gosh, not just the wharf. I mean, just when Greenleaf is situated on the corner of M Street and Delaware. And so, what it's like to see all of these buildings that are going up around you when you're still dealing with the housing authority, who's basically have neglected 
those apartments so they can be sold. And so you can't. So displacement is evident if, because when you fix something, if you just put a band-aid on it, then sooner or later, as I said, until you get the developers to get something you like, they're moving us out. And then we're constantly moved out. I was in 203. And then I moved from 203 to Greenleaf Senior so we can get a ground floor apartment because the elevator in 203 kept breaking down. And so those are the kind of things that you deal with. But sure, there's been just there are more homeless people. What I've noticed is that when people are displaced and homeless, they come back to the neighborhood. They have nowhere else to go. So they're in living with family. They're on the floor. They're living in the summertime, that park over at the rec center. All night long people are in the, in the summer because they have nowhere to live. Now that it's winter, Yes, they go and sleep on people's floors because they couldn't afford what you're doing. And so you evicted them. So yes, it is. It's very hard not to see that. Between 2000 and 2010, the District of Columbia lost 40,000 black residents and gained 50,000 white residents. Parisa Naruzi of Empower DC sat down with us to talk about the realities that the development of the wharf contributes to. A city becoming whiter with time, where residents of color and residents of lower income have a harder and harder time gaining a foothold. You can look at maps and demographics that show, even from 2000 to 2010, that the area became much whiter. Um, and so I would think that this is just contributing to that. I mean, you know, certainly because of the racial wealth gap that exists, you know, you're more likely to see more white people having access to those units because there are some very high-cost units. Mm -hmm. So... What's the average, what would like the average price that one of those units would be going for be? Well, the last thing I saw was saying that two bedroom apartments in Southwest are over $3,000 on average. But I have to look at the each individual property. Um, I saw recently, for instance, that one of the condos on the waterfront was sold for $4 million. Um, and actually the developer of the property bought it for $4 million. So it also signals that he's helping to set the price for his own property so that others would be um, valued similarly. Yeah. And so the city sold that property for a dollar? That's right. Is that correct? Yeah. How does that work out? Yeah, it's pretty shocking, but the city has been doing this um, for many years. It's pretty common for the city to give property or sell property for well below the market value to developers who are building market rate properties. You know, they're building commercial or residential development. It's not like they're doing it to build a community center or, mm -hmm. you know, something that's like, you know, uh, not about profit. <laughs> they're they're right. doing it to promote what they call economic development and they continue to use this narrative that if we have more people moving in, if we have more condos, stadiums, hotels, that all of this is the solution to our other problems and somehow it's going to you know, lift all boats and it's going to make sure that there is enough money for affordable housing and other things and we've seen that that's a lie. 
Well, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is a good segue. So, like, do you feel like the future of public housing in that area, the city, is under threat now? It's absolutely under threat. Um, public housing is under threat throughout the city and throughout the nation. It's something that we all need to do some soul searching about because, in my opinion, public housing is about our values as a country. And mm -hmm. do we believe that we must ensure that all people have access to housing? And that's really the solution to the homeless crisis, is that all people have access to housing. There's a lot of myths and stereotypes and discrimination against public housing residents, and that stems a lot from racial discrimination and racial stereotypes and bias. Because, again, you know, we have to look at the history of the country. We have to know the racist land use policies and the racist lending policies that led us to this point mm -hmm. where we have this extreme wealth gap that exists and DC is a great illustration of it and that translates into housing access especially in DC it's black people in particular who for the most part are, are being impacted by the homeless crisis and the housing crisis on black and brown people and so yeah we must take local responsibility that we know that public housing was a federal has been a federal program but the federal government continues to erode that program cut money from the budget Trump's uh, budget, proposed budget, would slash it more than ever before and have a devastating impact. And what that means to me is that we need to take local responsibility and put it in our local budget that we fund and preserve and improve public housing. And the thing that people need to know is that all of this talk that you hear about, you know, oh, the mayor saying, I put $100 million into affordable housing, none of that goes to public housing. And a lot of that is for housing for people who are moderate income. They're not low income. People who are making fifty, sixty, seventy, and even eighty thousand dollars a year. So not the most vulnerable people in our society. Right. The city is spending the least amount of money on the housing for the people who need it most, and the people who need it most are actually the largest percentage of of the people in need. You know. So we're not solving, for instance, that the homeless crisis, which right now DC has become a city where majority of the homeless are families with young children. In the past it was majority single adults and now it's families with young children and that is because of the lack of affordable housing. Wow. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Parisa. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, we have to look beyond the window dressing. There is a veil of progressivism and, you know, this veil of, well, we're Democrats and we're progressives, so, you know, our city government is humanitarian and we care. And the truth is that it's a very brutal city for poor people. And there are votes taking place at the city council all of the time that underscore that, where in one setting, you know, as happened just a couple weeks ago, the council voted to give over $80 million in, in um, tax breaks and incentives and subsidies for developers building condos, uh, mostly one-bedroom condos in the union market area, and at the same sitting voted not to invest more in uh, housing for the homeless. And so we have to look beyond the mayor's talking points about ending homelessness and about all this money she's putting into affordable housing. And we always have to ask affordable to who? Because the trick is that they are creating housing for, you know, like I said, higher income people, not the lowest income. And so we really have to do our homework and look beyond that, that window dressing. That window dressing is enticing indeed. Back on the Wharf's boardwalk, 
Those I spoke with were impressed by the rapid changes to the area. So what's your name? Jonathan Gitman. So what brought you out to the wharf's opening this weekend? Well, we live around the corner, so it's nice to have stuff to do around here. Fantastic. So do you feel like it's a big change for the neighborhood? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of development here. Right. This was the forgotten bit of D.C. for a long time. Right. So you do you feel like the change has mostly been positive? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. We've only lived here since, what, May. So we're relatively new to the area, too. We used to live in the northwest. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe too, too soon to see but I would expect so okay. we'll see how like parking works out and transport I think that's the big issue right Right. so you know if everyone who moves in who expects to have a car and a lot of metros all the way over there right we'll see how it works out some of those I spoke with who were enjoying themselves at the wharf's opening festivities like Jonathan Gitten had only arrived in DC to live within the past year and the city is moving quickly to fulfill the promises it lured the gentry here with, such as that the city would be able to rival any other in the nation with state-of-the-art development projects along its natural features, even if this means some long-standing residents of D.C. will no longer be welcome on their own turf. From Southwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. We'll be hearing... More voices later in the show from On My Mind, In My Heart, Voices of Women in Public Housing. Also, Wednesday, November 29th, was the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People and the 70th anniversary of the United Nations Partition of Palestine. To mark the occasion, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights released a video entitled Palestine 101, It's Not That Complicated. In an accompanying statement, the U.S. campaign says that the state of affairs, apartheid on the ground in Palestine, Israel today, is not too complicated to understand. It is quite simply, they say, a continuation of the ongoing and unwavering process of Zionist settler colonization. Here is audio from the video Palestine 101. It's not that complicated. Every June, Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank including East Jerusalem, mark another year of living under Israel's brutal military occupation, now more than a half century old. This occupation is characterized by the violent theft of Palestinian land and resources, racial profiling and targeting of civilians, mass incarceration and torture, and more. For decades, a supposed peace process has been ongoing to end this occupation, but instead it has served as a cover for Israel as it further entrenches its control over Palestinians and their land. The occupation and settlement of the West Bank and Gaza were never meant to be temporary. They are simply the latest iteration of Zionism, the settler colonial project being carried forward by the State of Israel. The Zionist movement that would come to found Israel sought to respond to European anti-Semitism by creating a Jewish nation-state in Palestine. Zionist leaders understood that a way to manufacture a Jewish majority was to remove the native Palestinian inhabitants and settle Jewish people in their place. Despite anti-Zionist campaigning by Palestinian leaders, the Zionist movement won support from Britain with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 triggering decades of fierce Palestinian resistance to the colonization of their homeland. 
This included international lobbying for independence from the British Empire and, in 1936, a massive popular mobilization that began as a general strike and would eventually become the armed uprising known as the Arab Revolt. Despite Palestinian resistance, in 1947 the UN recommended partitioning Palestine against the will of its native Palestinian population, and Zionist militias were emboldened to create a state by force, including through the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. In order to create the State of Israel with a Jewish majority on 78% of Palestine, Zionist forces depopulated and destroyed 500 Palestinian villages and then denied 750,000 Palestinian refugees the right to return to their homes after the war ended. Today, more than 7 million Palestinian refugees live in exile prevented from exercising their inalienable right to return to their homes simply because they are not Jewish. Meanwhile, Israeli law permits Jewish people from around the world to immigrate to that same land anytime they wish. Although they were eventually granted citizenship, Palestinians who remained in what became Israel lived under martial law and military rule for nearly two decades. Today, Palestinian citizens of Israel remain subject to a system built to structurally disadvantage them. With more than 50 laws that discriminate against them as non-Jews in a Jewish state. Israel's intentions are most clear when it comes to the Gaza Strip, where Palestinians are targeted by a suffocating siege, denied their basic needs for survival, including adequate food, clean water and electricity subjected to periodic heavy bombardment and sealed off from the world, unable to escape. This is a humanitarian catastrophe deliberately manufactured and maintained by Israel. U.S. taxpayers are complicit in Israel's apartheid system through the billions of dollars in weapons that the U.S. gives Israel each year about $10 million every day, and through the political and diplomatic support the U.S. provides in blocking international efforts to hold Israel accountable. After more than 100 years of Palestinian resistance to Zionist colonization, it is as urgent as ever to join the movement for freedom, justice, and equality for the Palestinian people. November 29th is just one of four significant anniversaries for Palestinians this year. As we mentioned, 2017 also marks 100 years since the Balfour Declaration, 50 years since the beginning of Israel's illegal military occupation of the Gaza Strip and West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and 10 years since the imposition of the siege on Gaza. You can learn more about the history of the Palestinian resistance on December 9th, uh, on the 35th anniversary of the 1987 Intifada, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights is holding a webinar that will cover the rich history of Palestinian resistance. And that will be Saturday, December 9th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can get more information on their website at uscpr.org. That's uscpr.org for U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. I vow to the Lord, and they made my vow to the Lord.
is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. on october 16th 1859 john brown led an attack on a federal garrison of weapons at harper's ferry then a part of virginia which was put down by federal troops but his action is credited with sparking the civil war that led to the end of legalized chattel slavery in the united states well a new movie about john brown titled patriotic treason is in the works And on Monday, December 4th, a program including a screening of and an excerpt of the film along with musical performances is happening to raise money to help complete the film. Here to talk about the project is organizer of the fundraiser and also co-founder of WEAC Radio, Kamon Freeman. Welcome back to the show, Kamon. Peace and blessings. Good morning. Well, let's talk about the movie first and your connection to it. Well, John Brown's always been a hero of mine, one of my greatest white heroes. It was a short list, but, but he's on the top of it. And about a year ago, uh, I met um, Tim Wise, who's been an outspoken critic of institutional white supremacy. And I told him about uh, a little-known fact uh, on John Brown and his connection with uh, Langston Hughes' uh, family. Uh, a lot of people do not know that Langston Hughes' maternal grandmother was actually the w- a widow of a man who was killed with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. And he died wearing a shawl, allegedly, she made for him. And it, makes, it made it back to her, became a family heirloom. And she wrapped little Langston in it as a child and told him the stories. And he kept it in a safe deposit box until he came of age. And he took it to a museum in Ohio where it's still on display today. Tim was amazed by that and was like, um, you should write that story. And so about a year ago, uh, I started working on the screenplay. And then I found out later that Robert Dick Gregory shared the same admiration for uh, John Brown. He categorized him as the greatest white man that America ever produced. And so I then spoke with uh, my last conversation with uh, Robert Dick Gregory was about this uh, project. He agreed to um, be on it. And unfortunately, um, that wasn't to be when he passed. And his death caused me to, as John Brown would say, um, action. I realized that instead of just writing it, I'm going to have to do it. And so here we are. So I know if people look online, they may see information about another project that Giancarlo Esposito was doing maybe a few years back on John Brown. But this project is different, right? Yeah, the the great Giancarlo uh, Esposito, great actor, had um, tried to bring the book um, titled Patriot Treason to the screen. Uh, it was supposed to have been a miniseries. He had um, also the great actor Ed Harris, a great casting choice, uh, to play um, John Brown. But um, that project didn't see the light of day. And the project that we are bringing to the table is an original screenplay that I wrote. Um, so I did not use Patriot Trees in the book. And, and if we run into legality issues over the title, uh, we will have to address it when, it, when it, that time comes. But it's a completely different project, obviously. But I definitely wanted to reach out to Giancarlo and uh, find out what went wrong and hopefully get him on board for this project. You mentioned the book Patriotic Treason, and that was the book by Evan Carton. And just preparing for our talk, you know, I looked at the what I could see of the book online. And in the book, Carton describes a scene that apparently had a very profound impact on John Brown. You know, as a boy, 
you know, John, John Brown saw another boy, a black enslaved boy being beat with a shovel, like for no good reason. And he said long after that, he could hear the boy sobs, sobbing, you know, in his ears, just the sound of the boy, the young boy and, and wondering, you know, to himself, if there was a God to protect defenseless enslaved children. And just reading that was just so moving to me and just so hurtful. So how much of the movie that you're planning deals with John Brown's whole life or does it deal with primarily the, the raid on Harper's Ferry? I haven't, I haven't read uh, Picture of Treason. I did that deliberately so that uh, if, if in case we get into a legal situation, I can hold to that. But again, because it's an original um, screenplay that's not derived from the book, but that story is definitely represented. Uh, in fact, we open with that in, in our, our short film version uh, that people will get a chance to see on, on Monday. Well, you know, uh, a lot of us are still smarting over the sinking of The Birth of a Nation, directed by Nate Parker. When the film was released, you know, he was kind of retried in social media on rape charges um, that he had been acquitted of, you know, 17 years before. Did seeing that happen impact your decision to kind of like move ahead and tell this other story about this important historical anti-slavery figure? Absolutely. Um, Nate Parker was a big inspiration to me, Just not just the, the power of the film, not just the, the beauty of that production, but his explanation. Um, if you go back and listen to his interviews, those were testimonials to um, dismantling white supremacy brick by brick. And um, even in uh, my liberated, conscious mind, I was one of the Negroes that were saying, they let him do that? They let him make that movie? You know, here we are in 2017, and we're still asking for permission. We, they let you? No. We have to demand these things. We have to assert ourselves. If we are going to be men, if we're going to be women and take our rightful place in this world, we must demand that, and we must do what needs to be done. And all this other uh, excuse um, like they use to discredit the film won't work uh, on this side. And we're here to uh, do what we can to, um, you know, until the lions have their own historians to tell the hunt. We tend to glorify the hunters. We cannot. Every film that's ever been done on John Brown is a uh, is is a is a caricature of the man. And uh, we're here to set the record straight. And um, Nate Parker was a big inspiration in this project. And I look forward to meeting one day. Okay, so that's December fourth. Go ahead, just give us the information. Yeah, this is, the significance of that date is that December 2nd was the anniversary of the hanging of John Brown. And Dick Gregory would go back uh, to Harpers Ferry in Charlestown uh, and, see, and visit the grave and hug the tree he was hung on. And that's why uh, um, um, Dick Gregory is such a big inspiration for this project. And December 4th um, is when we're doing this, this screen reading and, and the screening and, and on the stage reading and launching our, uh, our tour. But it's also the day that um, Fred Hampton was murdered in his bed. You know, by the FBI, and his family was awarded millions of dollars for that wrongful death and that, his assassination. So the struggle continues, and and we're we're part, or proud to be a part of the continuation of that struggle. So December fourth, nine p.m., people can go to uh, Eventbrite to reserve their seat, and um, they can also uh, uh, look us up uh, hashtag Patriot Treason uh, on all the relevant social media. And if they want to contact me directly, it'd be Freeman at We Act Radio, Freeman at We Act Radio. Well, you know, we also are heard outside the DMV. So uh, you said you're going on a tour. Where else will you be visiting? Well, the tour is still um, ongoing. Um, we're confirming um, dates and, and locations right now, but we will be um, closing the tour in March at Boston. 
All right. Well, I've been speaking with Kamon Freeman, director, I guess producer of the upcoming film, a film in the works about John Brown. He's having a fundraiser December 4th at Busboys and Poets at the V Street location or... Yes, the the flagship location, 14th and okay. B Street, in the Langston Hughes room. Um, join us as we engage in a competition of ideas rather than a competition of money. Thank you for joining me today, Kamon. Struggle in progress. When we come back, unheard voices from public housing in the nation's capital. Stay with us. Welcome to DC. post office. You know how much time the air to delivery? When do I stop being Mrs. Nice Guy? And the cookouts? I said don't get me started on the cookouts. <laughs> Maybe it takes time. Maybe you'll make new friends. I don't know. My old friends are a comfort, but when they come visit, it's another problem. I gotta go through all this hassle to get them a parking place. 
They can't just drop by and pop or they'll get told. And the cookouts. All right, you press me. We can't grill unless we're three feet from our house. That's not enough room. I gotta walk three blocks to the park to cook out. But they gave the white folks some grills right up on their roofs. I had never lived in public housing. I applied for public housing in 1979, but I got called in 1995. Wow. I had been in a treatment facility for two years, and the second week after I got home, they called me. When I got to Arthur Capers, the elevator stopped this high above the landing. The halls were dreary and disgusting. Oh, it was pissy and gloomy. And I said, you shouldn't let anybody live here. Well, they said if I didn't take the next place, that they would take me off the list. They sent me to Bury Farms. My brother drove me. I'm praying that when I get there, that it's better than the first place. When he said to me, Huh, you want me to get you a burglar alarm or a dog? So I stayed with my brother for a while. When I finally said I was ready to move, we loaded up the truck. Drove it over there. Now the next thing I knew, the truck was coming back with all my belongings on it. Why? Because the people had broken into the house and vandalized it. Oh, no. Then it had to be cleaned again before I could move in. Mm. I, I had to get used to the ice cream truck. Comes all the time. Here it comes 24/7. <laughs> and I had to get used to the gunshots. As time moved on, I found ways to adjust. I walked different routes. I always spoke to everyone. People knew me as the lady who worked. I tried to keep my kids from doing wrong, but living here meant there was more for me to worry about. My daughter graduated from Howard University. All my sons graduated from school. They look at us and assume. Oh, they're just looking for handouts. They're lazy on jerks and they don't want to work. We do work. We want as much out of life as you do. That's right. We're children of God just like you. Tell your story, India. I was born December the 8th, 1980. My grandmother raised me. Mm-hmm. She came here from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. My folks were country people. Mm-hmm. Coming into this city life, they were family oriented and they instilled the church life in me. I was sheltered to a certain degree because I had a certain a number of hours to be outside and TV, it just was a privilege. That I had to earn. Yes. And my focus was Bible study in school. Back then, it was a community. Your grandparents knew other grandparents. You didn't talk back to elderly. No. I started asking questions. I was always smart and inquisitive. I was in the gifted and talents program. I began to hear other kinds of things 
from other kinds of kids, kids who were raising themselves. Well, the late 80s was the era for what? Pimps and hoes. And in 1986, well, trouble came to the city. The killing started. Mm -hmm. We started seeing dead bodies. Kids walking over dead bodies. Yeah, my grandmother had older people that walked me to school to protect me. As a kid, I remember running, seeing people running down the street. I mean, they was running down the street naked. Girl, mind your business. Oh. They nudging off that love boat. My grandmother was a midwife and the building captain. And Miss Fuller didn't play. No, she didn't. Well, I had a conversation with my mother from a distance. She was beautiful and very intelligent. She was still in school, but she just got involved with a fast way of living. As I grew older, my need to connect with my mother, well, it led me to break away from the church life. And I wanted to work because I knew my grandmother and my mother, they needed my help. Well, my mother, she lived in the 501. She had just come out of the shelter. And from 1995 to 1997, well, 501 was just like new Jack City. Oh, no. They had a whole different set of rules and regulations. Well, my mother got frustrated with some of the managers who didn't care about the building. So she started advocating. Well, repairs in the building were a problem. And her health, oh, it just wasn't, it just wasn't that good. So we moved to 201 M Street. Later, she got an offer to go to 215 K Street. And I said, Mom, you don't want to move in there? That's the clubhouse. But she didn't listen to me. We moved in. I was miserable as hell. And within a month, she understood what I had warned her about. The constant leaks? Water from toilets above us leaking into our apartments. My mother tried to hold management accountable. She went to court. She put her money in escrow. She did all the right things. Mm -hmm. Then she got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Then cancer. Well, I stopped going to school. I became the head of household. I had to be the adult and make decisions. Everything really hit home when my mother passed away. Rest, Rest in peace. Love and condolences, yeah. If I had known what I know now, Crohn's disease can lead to cancer. If I had known, if I would have told her just to build her immune system, because a lot of these medicines will, the side effects mm -hmm. can wear your body down. If I had known. If you have an illness 
and you're not in a stable, livable environment, your condition gets worse. Yes, it does. Even if you don't have any medical problems, you will get them living in public housing because you're exposed to so many things that you don't even know you're exposed to. <coughs> I had known. That the lead-based paint, well, it's in the lease to protect management from liability. But people can't read. They had to work, so they couldn't go to school for some. They are signing things they just don't know they signing. So I see folks in my area, they walking around with oxygen tanks and they don't even know why they have oxygen tanks. Well, management knows why. You've got a government job. If you work for public housing, you know what's going on. You're making a way for your family while you're killing out. Yes. How can you condone the conditions that's killing our people living in public housing? When my mother passed away, rest, rest, rest in, in peace. peace. Blessings on you, India. They put a summons on our door. They said she owed them money. Mm. Owed them money. the power. Too many are powerless. Too few live in luxury. Too many live in distress. Too few hold the power. Too many are powerless. Too few live in luxury. Too many live in distress. Look around at the high rises. There's a different standard for everything. From the lease to the applications and to the treatment of the residents. Can I really be free to do what I must do if I ignore the pain that the others are going through? They are moving folks from group homes and institutions into the neighborhood, but the neighborhoods are already stressed. Families are stressed. They are displacing and separating people. They are destroying families and communities. And the government only cares about their ching ching ching. We're That's supposed right. to be an enlightened society where rights are important. But we're greedy and we're selfish. Repair. Don't displace. Do minimum repairs. Don't just use band-aids to cover them up. Everyone deserves a place to live that's safe. Human rights, housing rights, and justice should be more important than money. People are more important than money. Yes. yes. Tell your story, Linda. Yeah, tell your story, Linda. I was new to public housing, and my first thought was, I'm, I'm not, not going, going to make, make it. I had been living with my sister and was on the waiting list. They offered me three places and said I could choose. The first place I saw, I couldn't believe it. It was so awful, I went home, and I think I had a breakdown. I turned down the next place, too. 
The last place was 203. I have a daughter with disabilities, and they had just remodeled the accessible units, which are disabled units. I went into the second floor apartment, and they had done a good job. I went out on the balcony, and it had a subroof. And everything that you can think of was on the subroof. From the bicycles to the dirty diapers. The woman from the office said it would be cleaned off before we moved in. Of course, you know it wasn't. And you know, for the first six months, we didn't stay there. I stayed with my sister. I wasn't comfortable enough to move in. One day, the property manager said to me, Remember, it isn't about where you live. It's about who you are. Be true to who you are. If you hold that up, you can live anywhere. And you know those words stay with me to this day. We moved in, and it was a real adjustment for me. I can remember pushing Kaya in a wheelchair outside. The children were curious. They stared. It was hard for me to get to know my neighbors. But I still got up in the morning and did my routine. And I still went out doing advocacy and getting resources for Kaya. The second year, I started speaking to people and seeing what was available in the neighborhood for Kaya and me. A woman on the third floor moved in with a daughter that was disabled and we bonded. But it was tough. The elevators would break down because they were old and the children messed with them. I had to carry Kaya down the steps. She got heavier, the wheelchair got heavier with the attachments. On weekends, there was always urine in the elevators. I kept a rug at my front door so that I could wipe the wheels and not bring the urine into my apartment. I nagged the property manager about the elevator. But Monday morning, the elevator repairman didn't show up, arrived early to make a difference. I still had to carry Kaya down those stairs. You stay on your guard. You learn how to cope. The living is hard. But you have to have hope. You stay on your guard. You learn how to cope. But the living is hard. But you have to have hope. Tell your story, Abner. Well, I'm a single parent. Mm -hmm. My name was on the housing list for 16 years. Three years ago, I hit a bad patch. They closed my store and I lost my job. I got behind on the rent and was about to be evicted. That's when housing called me. I moved into my new place just two days before the eviction people came to my old one. Sometimes things go your way. Yeah, well, this was my first time in housing and I didn't know much. I've always been involved in my community and I like to empower people. I started trying to work with the kids in the building. After a while, I had 15 kids in my apartment. Mm -hmm. 
after a while, she, I, I even wrote a grant for 1500 to beautify our block. We started planning and beautifying. I can tell you one thing for sure. I will not give up. Yeah. I am now the resident council president of Hopkins Apartments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell your story, Rhonda. I went to college, and I'm still in housing. People might say, what have you accomplished? I feel that this is what God wants me to do. I've lived in housing all my life. My mom raised me and my sister in housing, so it's hard for me to compare it to other places. I look at it and see. I see community. Some people look at it and think, look at those poor folks. They say to their dogs. Don't worry, Fido. Those folks, they'll be gone soon. <laughs> So now white people are squeezing into our end of the community because the places are affordable. But they don't always speak. Nope. Long ago, it was peaceful and friendly. When a crack epidemic hit my neighborhood in the 80s, some of my neighbors turned into zombies. I would go to friends' house and wonder why there was no food. Friends got kicked out of their homes. But I was thankful that we had a stable home in Southwest. I didn't think about poverty. I could see my mom struggle. But she kept the attitude that we're going to make it. I could see her strength and strong will. Mm -hmm. right. And I said, I'm, I'm going, going to be tough, tough like her. her. But I was an introvert. Mm -hmm. I was the little mute child. I was in my own dream little world building my Barbie house. I was a bookworm. Mm -hmm. I could do everyone's homework. Right. When I became a young adult, people encouraged me. When I started working, I was told, girl, if you can't talk, you can't work here. So I started talking publicly. I found my voice. My mom raised me to own my community, to build a loving, connected community. I remember the gunshots, getting down on the floor, seeing bodies and killings. But you have to learn how to shut it up, shut it out and not absorb it. If you absorb it, you'd be too scared to leave the house. And some people wouldn't leave their homes. I'm glad my mom taught us. You can change the neighborhood by being a part of the neighborhood. That's right. I deal with developers and people with means. Trying to get them to understand what my world is like is like pulling teeth. When I come into the room, they get uncomfortable. But I can't be scared to say what's on my mind. I can't be worried about people liking me. When I get nervous and stumble over my words, find your rhythm and flow through it. Find your rhythm and flow through it. Find your rhythm and flow through it. I'm tired of fighting for my place in this world. I'm tired of poverty. It's ugly and it hurts. It stresses us out. It kills us. I can't reverse the damage that has been done to my people. These patch jobs are not working. We're still suffering. We are still depressed, suppressed, and angry. And I'm tired of yes. knowing my place and the limitations that I was born into. I'm tired of cycles of poverty that never end. Speak! When does the boat come to help us? It brought my ancestors in shackles, and we are still in chains. We built this country. We're part of America. We are all God's children. Yeah. Speak. Speak. If we give up on each other, what do we have left? 
There has to be hope. I want to be where I am. I believe something good is going to come out of it. We have the opportunity to make it the community we want it to be. Speak! Our ancestors had strong spirit and will. What did they do that for? If it wasn't for us. Can't be content in misery. It comes down to you and me to make this world what it should be. If we lose our community, then nobody is truly free. Now Now is the the time to say, you You are are on my mind mind and in my heart. heart. You You lift me up. You You lift us up. You have been listening to voices from the premiere of the Empower DC community theater production On My Mind, In My Heart, Voices of Women in Public Housing, which will be touring Washington, DC during December 2017. You can get more information by reaching Empower DC on their website, empowerdc.org. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Kamone Freeman, and thank Chantel James for her reporting on the new DC Wharf development. The music we played this hour included a clip from the film in progress, Patriotic Treason by Kamone Freeman, Welcome to D.C. by Mambo Sauce, and samples from All Go Blind by The Crossroads. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be signing copies of my new book, Olokun of the Galaxy, at a launch party and exhibit Thursday, December 7th at 6 p.m. at 410 Good Buddy Gallery, 410 Florida Avenue in Northwest D.C. Thank you for tuning in and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace. <laughs>